giant robot smashing into other giant robots. This is the Giant Robots Smashing into Other Giant Robots podcast, where we explore the design, development, and business of great products. I'm your host, Chad Pytel, and with me today is Yoav Shapira, who is currently an engineering manager at Facebook, but has a long history in many startups that got their start in Boston. Yoav, thank you for joining me. Thanks for having me. I'm super happy to be here. Big ThoughtBot fan. Thanks very much. So I mentioned you have a long history in startups. So why don't you just quickly for the listeners, give that uh, quick history? Yeah, sure. So when I started my career, I wasn't thinking about startups. My first couple of jobs were at big companies. Mm -hmm. But then in business school, my thinking changed because a lot of my friends were like, hey, maybe we should start a company if we're not going to do it now, before we have kids, et cetera. When are we going to do it? So my, my first startup uh, is a company called Car Gurus. It's the world's biggest automotive marketplace now. When we started it, the founder, CEO, his name is Langley Steinert, seemed like an awesome dude to work with, and, and he was. Uh, turn, turned out to be amazing. So I, I was the first uh, technical person there, and I was still in grad school, actually, when we started it. I worked there for a, a little bit. And then a couple of my other friends from grad school wanted to start this company around small and medium business marketing. Uh, so that's HubSpot. That was the second startup that I worked at. At both of those companies, I ran and built the engineering and product teams. Uh, I was at HubSpot for a little longer, a few years. That was awesome. Uh, both of those companies are around and doing well and uh, lots of lessons learned there. After that, I also worked at a couple of other smaller startups that didn't grow as much. One was called Happier, which was a, a consumer-facing app, B2C, around uh, helping people be happy and gain the health and, and well-being benefits that come from that. And right before Facebook, I worked at the, uh, this startup called Jana, J-A-N-A, which was around making the internet free to, to folks in emerging markets. So again, mm-hmm. B2C. Uh, So four startups, a couple of them now are big, publicly traded, multi-billion dollar companies, and a couple are not. And that's, I don't know, about 14 years, I Mm -hmm. guess, in in a minute. (laughs) So when when you were starting CarGurus as the first sort of engineering person, were you right there for the writing of the first lines of code? Yes, yes, absolutely. So Mm -hmm. none of these startups were my idea. I was very fortunate. I've been very fortunate to work with CEOs who had a a vision and they, they should get all the credit for the business idea. I'm much more of the executor, implementer, operator type. Mm -hmm. At CarGurus, I wrote pretty much our entire first prototype by myself in like the first few weeks, the very early, hey, let's try this, let's try that. It was, this is how old it is. It was like, we were some of the first customers on AWS. Mm -hmm. Uh, We were some of the first customers to have a Facebook app. So super early stage alpha APIs. I also hired a couple of people. So they were my first engineering hires uh, at CarGurus, just a couple of them, literally. Uh, And they're they're still there to, to the company's credit. And we had a very small team, uh, Mm -hmm. very scrappy and actually fairly quickly became profitable as well. I know it was a while ago, but how were you thinking about your technical choices at the time? What language, what frameworks did you use? And was it a conscious choice or was it like, oh, this seems good? And It was a conscious choice, Mm -hmm. but I'm not sure it was really well informed. Mm -hmm. So uh, I would be lying if I said I had any sort of methodology. So when we started CarGurus, it was literally a blank canvas. Langley, the CEO, said, hey, I trust you. Let's make good technical choices and get running. 
I Googled some servers to get and, and like what instance types to use. It was very early days. Uh, I chose Java as the main programming language solely because that was my main language at the previous job. So I felt I could be productive in it and get something going quickly and around the ecosystem of libraries that was available even then. Mm-hmm. So it was kind of Java on AWS, MySQL because it was free and I didn't know and like what our scalability requirements would be. Mm-hmm. I- I'm a big fan of like if you're not sure, choose the boring proven tech because at least you'll be able to get help in operating it and keeping it running. Mm-hmm. I knew we weren't going to have like a super large team. I, I much prefer small teams anyhow that get a lot done. So I didn't want to be trying like super cutting edge stuff that someone would have to come up to speed on and if or when it breaks, because everything breaks, mm-hmm. you can't get, you know, st- I mean, Stack Overflow, I don't know if it even existed at the time, <laughs> uh, but you certainly, like, there were other forums. <laughs> yeah, there were other forums where you could get, like, Java help at least and MySQL mm-hmm. help. So that's, it was kind of boring tech. And then I have been an Apache Foundation member mm-hmm. and committer for, I guess, about 20 years now. I'm old. And so I picked some of the Apache tech that I knew, like Struts and uh, Spring and things mm-hmm. like that, Hibernate, to flesh out the stack. They were good enough choices. I'm sure they've right. been rewritten many times over. Mm-hmm. What was the biggest challenge for me was I knew nothing about uh, the car domain. Mm-hmm. So uh, a big challenge, I think I wrote code that still runs in car gurus today, was organizing the taxonomy of what's a make, what's a model, what's a trim for a car. So learning the domain mm-hmm. specific. So like, I'll give you an example, BMW or Mercedes, right? There's the three series, but is that a model? Or is it just like the 330XI that's a model? Or like, what's a model? And like organizing that taxonomy, that actually ended up being harder to get right than the, the language and, and like environment choices. Mm-hmm. How quickly was the service growing while you were there? Yeah. So I don't remember Mm -hmm. the exact numbers, but I do remember this. We originally tried, and I think Langley has talked about this in interviews as well. One of our original approaches was a Wikipedia for cars Mm -hmm. because we made the observation that you could get some reviews and information about cars, but it was largely like one per major site from a paid editor. So like Edmunds had something, cars.com had something, but it was the same editor who was being paid to like do reviews full time. It wasn't your peers, right? There was no trip advisor for cars. There was no trip, uh, Wikimedia or Wikipedia for cars. So we went with this wiki model where users could edit and like add information about a car. That did not work at all. Uh, no one was editing and it was, it, it didn't work. We built it, but it didn't work. Where we did pick up a lot of traction and I should credit the other engineers who were working on this because I didn't do a lot of this piece directly, was around some of the search engine optimization and search engine marketing where Langley has deep domain knowledge and expertise, and we were able to, to pick terms that generated a lot of traffic so we could get visitors to the site, and, and that picked up fairly quickly. Mm-hmm. Folks were Googling um, and, and using other search engines to f- try to research cars, and they weren't satisfied with the existing offerings in the market. So that user growth got pretty quick. And then again, to Langley's credit, I keep praising him, but he is a brilliant business development person. And he got a couple of early deals that we did, uh, for example, with eBay Motors to list, basically advertise for them on our site. And I did all the technical integration for that. And it was kind of like some of these Mm -hmm. janky XML APIs and things like that, but they worked. So we were able to get traffic and we're actually able to monetize traffic even though the original editing, like users contributing content piece, took a long time. Mm-hmm. 
then you moved on to HubSpot and what were the technology choices that you made there and were they influenced by what you had done at CarGurus or? <laughs> yes and no. HubSpot was a slightly different story because I wasn't the first technical employee mm -hmm. there. It was not a blank canvas. So right. Darmesh, our co-founder and CTO at HubSpot, was there and had made a couple of technical choices that I, I think he would be the first to tell you. He's done. He said this publicly. He very much regrets. Mm -hmm. uh, in particular, there was a C Sharp, uh, an ASP.NET framework that we used for part of our offering that ended up to just be awful. Not because the technology itself is bad per se, but because it's hard to find engineers who are motivated to work in that stack. Yeah. We had a couple of other early engineering uh, contributors, individual contributors, who worked on that and were able to build things on top of it, but they weren't like happy doing it. Yeah. So one of the first things I did was chat with them. It wasn't like my solo decision. Chat with all of them around, okay, what should our platform be? And we did make some other choice. So we, we used Java for a bunch of other things. We recognized that HubSpot's product is fundamentally a suite of products. Mm -hmm. So it was a suite of web apps, like the blog, the social media piece, the analytics piece where you get reports on your traffic, and so on. They're kind of like these nice horizontal suite. So in theory, we could try different stacks and see what worked. In practice, they were all web apps. Most of them were in Java for the first couple of years, and then we started adding other things. Mm -hmm. We ended up spending a lot of time on kind of some common styling, style guides, front-end components. The back-end was still MySQL for a large part of it, and then later on as the company grew, we added things like HBase and other systems to handle kind of more async uh, offline processing and roll-ups and analytics at a, at a larger scale. Mm -hmm. So how important do you think these decisions are when you're starting? You know, does technology choice matter or what are the important factors? Is it that people want to work on it? Is that more important than what it actually is? Yeah, these are great questions. I think what's important changes depending on the stage of the company. So early on at CarGurus, we were seeking product market fit. I think what matters there is getting a product to market quickly. And it, it might be an MVP or not. I kind of hesitate to use that terminology because it means different things to different people. Mm -hmm. But you do need to get feedback from actual users as soon as possible, as much as possible, and iterate based on that feedback. So whatever will get you there is probably the right choice. You just need to recognize that you might be accumulating technical debt along the way. At HubSpot, there was some initial product market fit, but it wasn't great. And they've talked about sort of the user acquisition versus churn versus other metrics in the past. So like, I won't go into that a ton, but we all felt like our initial technology choices were not great for iterating quickly and for attracting a world-class team and then retaining that team, keeping them happy. So as we gained customers, those factors, growing the team, keeping people motivated, growing, et cetera, while still, of course, listening to customer feedback and iterating fast, those became just as important. So I think technology choices matter. They don't matter as much as people think in the early days. Use whatever will get you customer feedback and, and obviously, hopefully, customer delight. The piece that bothers me when people don't take into account is recognizing the accumulation of technical debt and knowing they'll have to pay it down the road. So for HubSpot, it literally took us years to get rid of the original C-sharp mm -hmm. systems and it wasn't for lack of effort. We had dedicated teams, including customer support people and things like that that helped our customers migrate. We had dedicated processes. We had financial incentives for the folks involved. And it still took years to get rid of it. But the management team, to their credit, 
realized, hey, this was an early choice. It got us some value. We want to get rid of it. We're going to spend the time and effort to get rid of it. And I found a lot of companies that I advise, the non-technical people, they have a hard time recognizing what technical debt is and that you will have to pay it. It's mm-hmm. just a question of when and kind of how painful it'll be. I'll give another example. So one of our HubSpot kind of inspirations early on, and, and we've been public about this, was Salesforce, salesforce.com. Mm-hmm. And so Darmesh and I and other folks on the early HubSpot engineering team, we spent a lot of time chatting with Salesforce senior technical people, still friends with many of them. And they had some similar tech debt issues, but one of their brilliant things that they did that they don't talk about is they simply plan to rewrite a ton of their stack every two years or so. Technology changes and frameworks change and languages change. They just know that they're going to have these major rewrites progress on a regular cycle. They can budget for it. They can plan for it. They can include it in roadmaps. Everyone knows it's coming, including sales and marketing folks. I think that's brilliant because it makes it palatable to everyone. Mm-hmm. Instead of the, the anti-pattern that I see in startups I advise is like the CTO or VP of engineering has to like beg and cajole to convince the rest of the management team that this needs doing. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, totally does. Yeah. So CarGurus and HubSpot grew quite a bit. Is there a theme to the challenges that you face, not, not just from a technical debt standpoint, but from scaling challenges? Like what is the first thing you often hit when you're scaling a service? I think one main theme is that everything you do with the best intention, best skills, it's going to break. Mm-hmm. It's not going to work in three, six, nine, 12 months, kind of that sort of time frame. Getting people to understand that that's okay, right? You're lucky to be on a rocket ship. And yeah, it sucks when things break and we should fix them. But there's also not a ton of point to getting way, way ahead of it because then you're over-engineering and over-investing. And you see this in tech, but you also see it in like business processes, right? The yeah. HubSpot and Cargurus as well, but HubSpot is B2B. And so processes like how we onboard customers, how we uh, even like send them contracts and mm-hmm. have them sign contracts and do like custom contract terms and things like that. The company was going so fast, the sales and account teams were executing so well that those processes were breaking every few months. That's okay if you know it's coming. And I think uh, Brian, the CEO, and the rest of the team did a great job reminding everybody it's okay. Like, mm-hmm. we're going to be fine. So that was one theme. You, it's going to break. Fine. Like, don't stress about it. We'll redo it. We'll update it. And we're not going to solve it for five years, but we'll try to solve it for a year or two. Don't stress. That was number one. On the technical side, most often, it wasn't like pure service scale that broke. Because in most cases, not all, we definitely made mistakes, but in many cases, we were able to add, uh, HubSpot was AWS as well. Yep. We were able to add instances and load balance traffic. And it wasn't like perfect horizontal scaling, but it was close enough that it was asymptotically like correct. Yep. What really hurt us were two categories of issues. One was not understanding the customer's data model, mm-hmm. the ways the customers wanted to use data, because sometimes they couldn't articulate it. And this, this is my fault because I also supported the product team at the time. So it's entirely on me. We did not spend enough time truly understanding what our customers' pain points were and how we could help them in a more holistic way. We did things like focus groups and interviews and observing how they used our product, but it was too focused on our product. What we should have done more of, and hindsight's always twenty twenty, right. is how did they tie our data to other systems? What was their business process that led to us being hired? And I I wish we'd done more of that. That was number one. Number two, for a long time, 
uh, HubSpot's vision was to be the one-stop shop for marketing needs. And, and that's still part of the vision, and I think the company has executed remarkably on it. But you're not going to be the only software-as-a-service system for any customers pretty much these days. There's going to be other systems, and synchronizing data with them turned out to be a huge pain. I'll use the Salesforce example again because that's the CRM, Customer Relationship Management System. Many of our customers use it. They wanted their marketing and sales data synchronized. It's a reasonable request. They wanted custom reports in both systems that leverage data from each system. So it's a two-way sync. You don't have like a single system of record. Salespeople can update Salesforce. Customers or end users might do events on your website that update your marketing system. We spent many, many man years of effort, people years of effort to synchronize those. And I don't think it's a, it's an NP hard problem, mm-hmm. right? We, in fact, we had some HubSpot alumni when they left the company, start another company, but all it does is like CRM and marketing software sync. Mm-hmm. And it's not HubSpot specific, but HubSpot is one of their integrations. Holy cow. And that one, I don't know what I could have done to make it substantially easier. I know I could have communicated better around the difficulty. Like we thought it would have been easier and we were wrong. Um, Mm -hmm. It's a hard problem. So those those are the two themes. It was, I mean, we did have technical breakage. There were clear instances where our architecture was subpar and it did not scale with traffic and things started running late or delayed or the jobs took so long that the next day started and you would never catch up. Most of those were fixable with just some engineering time, figuring out, okay, what can we do async? Where are the bottlenecks? Things like that. Mm-hmm. The data model understanding problems and the data synchronization problems with, between all the pieces. You know, Many of our customers had WordPress blogs. Well, WordPress is cool, but a fairly limited API, and how do you synchronize that? And Salesforce is a CRM. As the company HubSpot grew, many of our customers wanted finance-related reports. So yeah. like, what's my financial ROI on my blog? Awesome question, totally valid. Amazing to solve if you can do it well, but now you got to sync with financial data systems, right? And it's like, ugh, those are the two kind of dominant patterns, I think. So you alluded to this, that you were both on the product side and the engineering side. Mm -hmm. It strikes me that these problems straddle that, like deciding what to do, (laughs) communicating how easy or hard it is, and having it be driven by customer demand, and then actually executing on it. Yeah. How do you approach balancing all of those needs? It's tough. I'll tell you what I did then Mm -hmm. and why I don't think it was great and what I've learned from them. Yeah, that's great. This is a few years ago at this point, and I I hope I've learned enough to be better if if I did that again. What was great at the time was that the original HubSpot management team Many of us, I guess most of us technically, went to business school together. Not exactly the same years, but we mm-hmm. had overlap. So Mark, who ran sales, Mike, who ran marketing, Brian and Darmesh, I mentioned CEO and CTO, myself, uh, Jonah, who ran our uh, initial kind of consulting and customer support sides of the business. We had a common language. We had great trust with each other. And I think a big factor in HubSpot's success was that for the first five years or so of the company, we were all there together in the, in the same roles. And then roles changed, and there were other key people as well, like uh, this guy Jim O'Neill, who was our CIO for a while. But we had a lot of common vocabulary and a lot of common understanding and values, which means that we could just have honest conversations about this stuff, and you don't worry that someone is politicizing something. Mm-hmm. So I think one piece that I did well that helped was the management team communications. But... 
I'm not sure it's a good idea to have product and engineering kind of report to the same person. Mm-hmm. In general, I think there's a healthy creative tension between them. And too often at that time, I erred on the engineering side mm-hmm. as opposed to I could have had higher empathy for the customer. I've, I could have spent more time with the customers. I could have pushed our product people to spend more time with the customers. And at the time, those were weak areas. I regret them. So I think there should be this healthy tension. Customers always want new features. Engineers always have tech debt. There's balances. There are a few different ways to try to settle those things. So for example, one thing we tried at HubSpot was we used um, uh, Agile, Scrum, um, mm-hmm. fairly textbook, which we said, you know what? Every team, every Scrum team gets 25% of their time for like maintenance stuff, and the rest should be new features, just as like a guideline. That turned out to be okay, except when maintenance is bursty. Like mm-hmm. tech debt projects, you know what? We need to like not do new features for a couple of months or three months or even six months and just fix this system or rewrite this system or, or spike on a brand new application or part of HubSpot. So 25% ongoing implies like some sort of steady state that doesn't really exist in the real world. Right. And that was a hard problem to solve. One balance thing I tried to do with mixed success, but again, my fault, I think, but the idea was decent was to make sure that every Scrum team delivered at least one customer-facing feature, ideally a delightful one, something they ask for, we think they need, that would delight them and improve retention and things like that, every single sprint. So I didn't want a team to go dark for like a month or two mm-hmm. months, because then the rest of the organization, sales, marketing, support, don't know what that team is doing. I was concerned about this, and I don't think I solved it entirely, uh, but I was concerned that the engineering team becomes some sort of a black hole where the rest of the company doesn't know what they're doing. The concern was well-placed, and that it still happens sometimes, especially with the big kind of technical projects that didn't have immediate benefit. Mm -hmm. What I would do today, I think, differently is try to explain to folks before we start projects how we make decisions about what's prioritized, like what are the metrics that we're solving for how do we set our goals? How do we prioritize? And, and at least try to get their buy-in on that level. Because then if they trust you, the rest falls into place. I didn't handle that crisply back then. Mm-hmm. What, what happened down the road is we hired VPs of product. So we separated the role, uh, which I thought was great. And we had a couple of awesome VPs of product who handled it better than I did. And then there was kind of this, this natural healthy tension between engineering and product. But I think... Folks like David Cancel and Sam Clemens were better advocates for the customer. They were more customer-centric than I was at the time, and, and that's what the company needed. Mm-hmm. And where does design fit into the team? Is it product or engineering? So I think it's a better place with product mm-hmm. if those are the two choices. Okay, yeah. Maybe there's a third choice. It depends on how you think about design. So like... Mm-hmm. I like to think about it not as making things pretty or even mm-hmm. making things like smooth or understandable, but kind of capital D design to consider the entire customer problem, to have high empathy for them, to get in their shoes. So high overlap with product management, maybe to do some competitive research to see what are other apps doing, at least in terms of their design and their user experience, and try to come up with holistic solutions to that, right? So like the best designers I've seen, they think about your company's website. What's the message we're giving potential customers there? 
And then, okay, and then the customer starts using your product and they think about the registration funnel and activation and things like that. And yeah, they do the information architecture, they do the workflow, and either they or somebody else also does the UI itself. I think it fits really well with product. Depending on the scale of the organization, I can also see an option where it's its own standalone mm-hmm. org and there's a head of design who's parallel to the head of product. It really it depends on the type and scale of the org. At HubSpot, it was part of product. Mm-hmm. And I think that worked well, especially once we got heads of product who were better than me. Mm-hmm. I think they supported and integrated with design better. So from HubSpot, you went on to, you mentioned Jana and... Um, happier. Happier. You said yourself, those weren't as successful mm-hmm. <laughs> as massively public companies now. Yep. Did you approach them differently or... So what happened was, I'll mention this because it's relevant context. So after HubSpot, after I left HubSpot, I took a long time off, mm-hmm. uh, a few months. Uh, I planned to take a full year off. It wasn't quite a full year. I traveled around the world and kind of reflected on what I wanted to do. I loved the growth at HubSpot. I'm obviously very fortunate to have been a part of it. But I really wanted to work on something that was less about capitalism and profit and more just about making people feel better mm-hmm. and, and happy. I also felt like, at least during my time at HubSpot, and again, this is on me as well, we didn't push mobile development as yep. much as we should have. It was a very web-centric era. And I wanted to make sure I, as an engineer and as a product person, worked on mobile. And by the way, I really love the ThoughtBot playbook on this, mm-hmm. where mobile is the user, not the device. Right. 100%, spot on. I've, I've referred people to that in the Thanks. past. Yeah. So Happier, again, not my idea. Uh, Natalie, the CEO and, and co-founder, largely her vision. Really cool idea about helping people realize their kind of health benefits that you get from being happy. Gratitude journals and things like that are proven to work well. And it appealed to me in kind of like the simple but noble cause of can we make people smile more? Can we improve their well-being? I really resonated with that. So I thought, okay, this will be cool. Let's give it a shot. And it, it was a fun time. We had a really good, tiny team. I think I've hired almost everyone who was on that team multiple times. So like mm-hmm. after we left Happier, it turned out to be a really tough market to retain users and monetize them as well. And you could argue about strategy. I think hindsight's twenty twenty, but it was it was a really fun experience. And then I went from there to Jana. Which is also mobile. Also mobile. Mm-hmm. Um, what I liked about Jana was that it had this consumer aspect. It was a little less abstract, like, hey, let's help them be happier. It was more like, Internet access is becoming or maybe is a fundamental human right at this point. It's a great equalizer of of many things. But the Internet is not affordable or not even accessible to many people around the world. You know, we here in the U.S. with our multi-gigabytes per month data plans don't feel that. But there are many hundreds of millions, billions of people around the world who can't access these things and want to. Can we make it affordable? So there was not charitable, but like a positive vision for it altruistic a little bit. And again, all credit to Nathan, who was the CEO and co-founder of that company for the idea. So none of uh, these ideas were mine. But at the same time, the company had at least an idea of how to subsidize this internet for others and take a small cut off the top from the businesses who want to reach those people, whether it's Coca-Cola and like massive advertisers like that, or app companies that want installs for their app in India or Bangladesh or Brazil. And I liked the elegance of that idea. Plus, I was seeking a higher degree of difficulty business model. And B2B to C, Mm -hmm. marketplaces are kind of nuts. And so I wanted that experience. 
It was also good timing for the company. They had some good technologists, but they really wanted to build up the team on both the product and engineering side and uh, try some new bets and, and try some new things in market. So it was good timing. Mm -hmm. Are there ways in which from not having done mobile in your background, having been pretty web and backend centric, that working at mobile first companies was different? Yes. First one by far was the limited screen real estate, mm. right? And if you look at some early designs of, of both of these apps, I definitely think we crammed too many things on the screen <laughs> and we were trying to move what was probably a web first thought into a mobile device. But we fairly quickly fixed that. Other things that were interesting to learn, not that hard, but interesting to learn, uh, the app update cycle. It's going to take a long time from when you make changes to mm -hmm. when a appreciable percentage of your user base has those changes in hand. So on the web, obviously, you can ship and everybody gets it right away. And I was kind of used to that and spoiled by it. Having to wait even several weeks for the app adoption cycle to kick in was, was frustrating. You get over it, but it was frustrating. Analytics turned out to be interesting. There are some concepts that even to like... You kind of shudder when people talk about native apps and cookies mm -hmm. and like the interactions between them. Like, well, cookies weren't designed for mobile. It's very much a uh, right. HTTP specific spec. So that took a little bit of adjusting. A lot of it is the same, though. I didn't find it like a huge transition. And if anything, it was mostly net positive because clearly more and more of our usage was going on the device as opposed to sitting at our desks. There's definitely some huge use cases that are still at our desk, but so much more was going on the device. For the first time in my career, I was actually enjoying dog fooding our own products. It was so easy, right? I pull right. out my phone, we talk about features, we take screenshots. That was awesome. It was, it was mm -hmm. really satisfying. So in addition to your work at Facebook, you, you also advise a lot of companies. You mentor at Techstars. Mm -hmm. What are some of the most common things that teams come to you with and say, oh, we're struggling with this or we're not sure about this? Yeah. So one of them is definitely what we've been talking about around product engineering interaction. Mm -hmm. When do we take on technical debt? How do we know if we're moving as fast as we can? Can we move faster? Will we sacrifice quality or something else if we move faster? How do we even track these things, right? Mm -hmm. What metrics are worth tracking? What metrics are worth goaling against? How do these things differ and so on? So that's a big area. Hiring is another one that I know I'm sure you think about a lot as well. Mm -hmm. How do we find good engineers, designers, product managers, and all the kind of more nuanced aspects of that? When do we have remote offices versus not? If we have remote offices, how do we keep collaboration and team spirit? Whoever you hire, how do you retain them? What do ladders and career growth and things like that look like? Titles. How do we know who to make a manager or a tech lead? And what do those roles even mean? Mm -hmm. I used to think that people would want tech advice hardly ever the case. Mm -hmm. It's almost all human issues. Yeah. How do we uh, inform the non-technical parts of our business about what we're doing and why? The stuff that ironically I mentioned, I don't think I did well at HubSpot. Mm -hmm. uh, <laughs> well, I mean, in my experience, ThoughtBot didn't get to where it is today with our playbook and everything by always doing it right. Oh, yeah. <laughs> that playbook comes from all the times we failed and said, we could have done that better. Yeah, yeah, and that's really important, right? That's a really common mistake I see, especially in early stage or sometimes first-time entrepreneurs, is they don't take the time to reflect. Mm -hmm. So I'm always, always, almost always asking people, what did you learn this past month about your business? Do you actually take structured time to reflect? And some frameworks like, like Scrum has the sprint retrospective that people do. 
other frameworks have other things, but I'm a firm believer in taking some time every week to like look back, what happened, what surprised you, what went better than expected, what went worse than expected. Write it down. You don't have to share it with anyone, but write it down for yourself so you kind of create a log. And in a month or three months or six months, look for patterns. And, and that's how you can improve yourself and, and your, your business a lot. Um, I definitely did not do that earlier on. I do it now. Um, so that that's a big pattern mm-hmm. as well. You know, the CEO just wants us to sell more. Um, how do we convince him or her that something like performance, speed improvements are going to translate to more sales? Mm-hmm. Very common sort of topic. You talked about hiring and business and product and design, but based on your experience, it sounds like the answer is often it depends what stage and context your company is at, yeah. what your product is and what the needs of your customer are. Is there anything that stands out that you've learned where you say, actually, it doesn't depend. Here's what I believe. <laughs> oh, it's funny. Um, there are such things. I'm laughing because there was a tweet from David Cancel just a couple of days ago where he said as he gets older, he realizes more and more of his answers are either it depends or I don't know. Right. Uh, and hopefully you can connect with someone who does know. But I totally agree with that. I kind of feel the same way. I'm, I'm getting older. More of the answers are it depends. But hopefully you can explain the trade-offs, right? Right. Here are your options, and, and here's how you might think about making this decision. What are you optimizing for? Some things that I believe is everybody says they want to get A players. Very few people actually make the time investment to do so. Mm-hmm. And you can do it with recruiters. You can do it by yourself. You can do different combinations. It takes a ton of time. Mm-hmm. At peak times, I, I was probably spending 50% of my time for months and months on just hiring the best people possible. Mm-hmm. Is it worth it? Yes. Okay. I also believe in that sort of mythical 10x person. Mm-hmm. It's not just engineers. It's usually not that that person is 10x smarter or something, but you can get engineers an order of magnitude improvement in productivity, and same for, for designers and other creative roles, by putting them in the right place where they're playing to their strengths. So another thing I believe in, and Facebook does this really well, play to people's strengths and double down on them. Try to make them world-class at something and then compose a team of people with different strengths as opposed to what many companies do is they say, okay, you're great at this, but you're weak in these areas, so let's call these your areas of growth and do some training and time investment and so on to merely get the person from like sucky to mediocre Mm -hmm. in those areas. To me, that's not a great use of time. Hmm. So very much like try to find people who have some strengths and double down, like set them up to be 10x contributors by not having to spend time where they're weak. And when you're struggling to build a team of A players, hiring is really hard. There's lots of opportunities. Economy is pretty good right now. So the market- Everybody good has a job. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Um, College grads or whatever. Yeah. So would you rather not hire than to hire people who aren't A players? Yes, 100%. Mm-hmm. And it's easier said than done, right? Everybody's got some project and they maybe they can tie some revenue to like this person's work. But I should qualify this. Like I'm a little jaded. Mm-hmm. I get turned off by mediocre right. work. I'd rather not have it. Not everybody can afford that luxury, right? In Mm -hmm. business or in a startup. So I'm totally spoiled in that regard. But yes, I'd rather only hire A players and do less. Have them go deeper on something. Because I also believe that it's better to to do like one thing and do it really, really well. Like the Unix philosophy, if you will, of Mm -hmm. tools. As opposed to what I've done in the past, which is do a bunch of things really not that great. Mm -hmm. We went... 
you know, for a long time, for example, at HubSpot, and it's not my saying, but I agree with it, we were a mile wide and an inch deep. Mm-hmm. And that helped with some things, but I, I don't think it was a great customer experience. And mm-hmm. then we had feedback to that effect. I wish we would have done, I would have done fewer things better. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I would rather do less with fewer people. I also believe in small teams. I think you mentioned that at the mm-hmm. beginning, that small teams of really good people accomplish amazing things. Yes. <laughs> and so, you know, I think when when you're struggling to hire because you think you need to hire a bunch of people, <laughs> just building a small team of really good people, you should be able to accomplish a lot. Yes, you would probably be able to accomplish amazing things. And the, the flip side that goes with this is, is that the management team is responsible for removing obstacles from these people, like help them be great. Don't saddle them, for example, with silly process for the sake of process. Mm-hmm. Ask them, what do you as a team need to be the most effective you can be? And listen, act on that feedback. There's a lot of examples of that. But yeah, I, it's not just hire great people. Make it an environment where they can shine. Mm-hmm. That also helps retention mm-hmm. a lot because it's really annoying to lose a great person. Yeah. Right. Retention matters as much as hiring. Everybody focuses on the front of the funnel, but all of them matters. Mm-hmm. When you're trying to build a team of really great people, how does bringing more junior people onto your team and training and that kind of thing factor into that plan yeah. for you? Yeah, teams ideally should be well balanced in terms of seniority. Because part of being a great senior designer, or engineer, or product person is that you can mentor and teach others. Right? Mm-hmm. They say you don't really know something until you're teaching it. So I'm a big fan, and some companies do this really well of bringing in college grads and interns, co-ops from Northeastern or other programs that have like six month or longer, mm-hmm. semester long duration. Huge fans of those. Those have been uh, crucial to pretty much every company I've been at. It's very much worth the investment to recruit from those and you can get great people. You can also get people who might be better in another environment, right? So mm-hmm. the usually the failure mode with the more junior engineers is not, and designers and product folks, it's not that they're bad people. They're often smart and capable, but they might not be a great fit for a startup. Maybe they want a little bit more structure, or maybe they don't want to be in this field at all. Mm-hmm. I've had folks decide they wanted to be salespeople, account managers, customer support, and that's great. Earlier on, it's good to find that out, and you haven't invested a ton. Mm-hmm. So is your goal then to find people who can in the hiring process, or is it to be pretty rigorous once they join and filter them out along the way? Both. I don't think there's a perfect hiring process. Mm-hmm. I've spent and I still spend a lot of time at Facebook on recruiting and hiring and what should the interview formats be like and where are the false negatives and the false positives because anybody who thinks they don't have those is kidding themselves, right? Every mm-hmm. company has misses in both sides. I think a mistake that companies make is following someone else's process just because of some brand name, right? Mm-hmm. So you shouldn't follow Facebook or Google or Apple's process just because they do it. You should figure out a process that works for you. Ideally, it mimics the actual job as closely as possible. Mm-hmm. And then once someone's on board, it's good to have really clear expectations and be rigorous, like you said, about enforcing them. So you got to hold people accountable. Obviously, your expectations from a, a fresh college grad with no professional experience are going to be different than someone with much more experience. But it should be clear to both of them and their managers, whoever they are, should have the right training that they need to hold people accountable for mm-hmm. performance. That's another area where I don't think I was great and I definitely could not teach people how to do it until fairly recently in my career. Like it's hard 
for managers to have those crucial conversations. It leads to all sorts of bad situations where people think they're doing well, employees think they're doing well, but they're not. Mm -hmm. And so there's this like diverging views of reality, which leads to drama eventually when it has to be reconciled. I don't think I was great at this and I've still got a lot to learn, but it's on the management team to give the tech leads or the first line managers or the rest of the management team the coaching they need. Um, Facebook has uh, this crucial conversations class that um, is based on some public books and and methodologies. It's phenomenal. It's amazing. I wish I had that earlier Mm -hmm. in my career and I wish I'd required it from all the managers I support. So you just mentioned Facebook. So what made you decide to, you know, from working with a lot of startups and early stage things, even the things that turned out to be big, you got in really early. Yep. What caused you to go to Facebook? There were two things that were the main factors. The first one I think a lot of people sympathize with, so I'll I'll talk through that one quickly, Mm -hmm. which is I had been moving from like B2B software, so like very early in my career, I was in pharmaceuticals and very indirect towards kind of cars, which Mm -hmm. we do occasionally shop for, towards like Happier and Jana, which was much more consumer facing. I wanted to continue that trend, but this time I wanted to work on a product that my friends and family use. Mm -hmm. So not some otherwise awesome business like HubSpot, CarGurus, awesome business machines, right? I'm a shareholder, could not be happier as a shareholder, especially today. But it's not necessarily products that my friends and family use on a regular basis. And that was really appealing. Like I knew I was going to get more tech support requests at Thanksgiving and other (laughs) venues, and that's fine. Like I'll accept that cost because I wanted to see my friends and family and myself use the stuff that we build. So that's, I think, a fairly common reason, at least among the people I chat with, for joining an Apple or a Facebook. And it was definitely highly resonant for me. Bigger, though, was intellectual stimulation. So these startups that we've been talking about were all awesome. I consider myself very lucky to have even had the opportunity to work at those places. But I'd been in startups for about 14 years, and I was finding myself getting a little bored, checking out intellectually a little bit. And I think that's a disservice to the customers and the company and your teammates. So I removed myself from that. I I left Jana. And I spent a few months reflecting on what I wanted to do and talking to a, a lot of friends and stepping up some investment things as well. Facebook, to me, is intellectually stimulating on a few different levels to an extent I haven't had before. So obviously people talk about scale and there's technology scale, right? Like mm-hmm. things that work for a million or for 10,000 users, a million users, they're not going to work for 2 billion. You got to figure out other stuff. All the startups that I talked about most usually the right tech choice is to take something that's open source and maybe adapt it a little to your needs, right. and that's fine. These companies are at the other end of the scale, right? The open source stuff won't work for them. In fact, a lot comes from them. So you need to be inventing these systems. So fundamental computer science matters, algorithms matter, data structures matter. And like to me, that's awesome. Mm-hmm. I, I, I'm a geek. I love that stuff. Even more important, the exact topics we're talking about, how do you create teams with autonomy that can move fast, can own a problem? How do you play to people's strengths? I'm really intellectually curious about what of that stuff works at Facebook scale, right? Mm-hmm. So we're publicly disclosed, tens of thousands of employees. Can any of these things even work? For the things that do work, what sort of investment does it require in terms of training or people or infrastructure or resources? It's been fascinating to see from the inside for many years. From all my time at startups, my recruiting pitch always had some variation of why would you want to go work at a big tech company? <laughs> you're going to be a small cog in a big machine. No one's going to notice if you're gone. You're probably not going to have any say in what you actually work on, much less how it's done or how it's selected. Turns out I was wrong. Mm-hmm. Even that pitch was highly effective, 
I've probably recruited 500 engineers <laughs> with some variation of that pitch. It was highly effective because it's right for most companies. Mm-hmm. But there are a few companies in the world, Facebook's one, it's not the only one, where it's not true. Mm-hmm. They have figured out, and this is, I think, one of the scariest things about these giants that's actually skewing the ecosystem a little bit in terms of talent. They have figured out how to give people autonomy and have them feel good and retain and grow and so on at their scale. And it's a, it's a pretty impressive machine. Mm-hmm. The last thing on the intellectual stimulation front was I want to deal with problems that no one's dealt with before. I find that exciting. It's mm-hmm. vague. It's weird. You got to take a lot of risks in terms of your solutions might not work and they might even upset a lot of people. But at least you're like swinging at the ball, right? Mm-hmm. I, I want to take some at-bats and try to help with these problems. Can't work on all of them. <laughs> there's too many of them. But there's, there's definitely a few interesting ones. Were you starting a new, something new at Facebook? Was it a new group or, or were you joining an existing team? I was joining an existing mm-hmm. team. It was going through a change in its kind of charter and organization a little bit. And it included uh, relocation for some of the teams mm-hmm. from the West Coast to the East Coast. So I'm not sure if you know this, but Facebook is making a huge investment in Boston. Mm-hmm. And the Boston office is growing a lot, and the set of teams is part of that growth. So the team existed before, but it was it was becoming Boston-centric, and it's a big area of growth for the Boston mm-hmm. office. Yeah, and to the extent that you can, what is your team actually working on? Yeah, sure. So... Facebook's mission in general is to bring the world closer together, create communities, empower meaningful social interactions between people and their friends, people and their families, people and businesses, and and so on. This team works on projects that leverage location data to create better community, machine Mm -hmm. learning, data science, and engineering, and product stuff. So examples um, that we've talked about, so I can can chat about them, things like safety check, if you've seen it. You know the thing that alerts you that there's like uh, some natural disaster Mm -hmm. in your area and lets people mark themselves as safe or not. Right crisis response maps that are related to that. So we share maps of people movement and so on with disaster relief agencies, the Red Cross, FEMA, things like that. And and we've talked about that a lot. On a more personal level, there's this uh, product that we built here called Nearby Friends that just lets you know if you're traveling out of town and let's say you're flying to London, you live in Boston, when you land, your friends, this is uh, opt-in of course, they will get notified, hey, you know, Mm -hmm. Chad's visiting right now do you want to get together for coffee so it's just to facilitate connections based on your location mm-hmm. that's that's what my uh, my team works on was this one of the first times or the largest time where you joined an existing team's ex- existing products existing projects it was the largest team i joined in the last 15 years mm-hmm. yeah so was there any surprises to you or anything you learned along the way about oh. maybe i didn't do that so well or maybe i it was easier than i thought it's been amazing. Um, mm-hmm. There have been surprises almost every day. He's, I don't even know where to start. Um, my manager is pretty amazing. I've mm-hmm. learned a lot from him about how to do the things that we discussed at scale, so how to give people autonomy and trust them, give them freedom to set their own goals and set their own roadmap and check in with them once in a while, but not require kind of central authorization and, and, and bureaucratic things that slow mm-hmm. you down. I think the company does that amazingly well. I, at startups, especially in the early phases, I never had the luxury of like amazing support teams that are not technical. Mm -hmm. So like HR, finance, uh, legal, privacy, all these kind of teams that at first you just don't have them, right? Mm -hmm. You have outside counsel and things like that. You don't need them. As you grow, they become stronger. And I'm actually like fairly fortunate. For example, our CFO for part of the time at HubSpot 
awesome guy. I love him. Learned a lot from him. Facebook's teams in this area are like, holy cow. They are so good. It resonates in like small ways, but what it, and I'll give you an example in a second. What it does is it makes you want to leverage them. Mm-hmm. And so you have more holistic approaches. Like instead of being afraid that some privacy lawyer is just going to nix whatever you say after like weeks of discussions, you're like, hey, Jen, just like over chat, mm-hmm. what do you think about this feature? Look at this. And we kind of collaborate and everybody learns and it's quick, it's efficient. You know, as a new employee, there are a bunch of required classes. You do an orientation. One of them is a fairly, I think, common legal requirement, like uh, being a respectful workplace, like anti-harassment mm-hmm. sort of stuff. I can imagine that class being a fairly boring PowerPoint deck because I've sat through versions of right. other employers. And it's like fairly generic PowerPoint deck. My second day at Facebook, I took the class. This woman walks in. She's teaching it. She does the whole thing from memory, right? Like no PowerPoint decks, no, de- no decks at all. Most of it was interactive role-playing games, and it was fun. People are like laughing and, and like thinking and interacting for two hours. Awesome experience, right? And later I look her up and I'm like, okay, so she was like the valedictorian at Harvard Law School, mm-hmm. and she's like a well-known like attorney on these matters. How do you find like that kind of person, right? They're so rare. It's been amazing to work with mm-hmm. these kinds of folks. That's been a huge surprise. And the, the thing I've been really pleased with is that Facebook also shares some of this stuff. So there's a whole series of videos on managing bias, mm-hmm. and Facebook produced that and then and then made it available to the public. And so we use that ourselves yes. because it's not corporate. It's just true and really good by people who clearly know what they're talking about. And so it's better than anything we can produce. It's sort of like it's the same thing that we do is like when we have something, whether it be open source or content or whatever, we want to share it. A hundred percent. And that was an attractive factor for me as well. I can like add a layer of detail to that. I love the practicality of what Facebook shares, right? So we talked a little bit about open source. And like I said, I've been involved with Apache for a long time. I was a little bit with Mozilla as well. And I love Facebook's MO, which is we build the things we need. We use them, we battle test them for some time, and it can be Mm -hmm. months, it can be years, and then we open source what is a working implementation. It's not a reference implementation. It's what we actually use in production, much less, and and some companies do this, it's still a valuable contribution, but like we don't put out a PDF that's like, hey, here's this abstract computer science concept, good luck building it, right? Mm -hmm. Like, go build MapReduce, Mm -hmm. have fun. Right. We're like, here's Cassandra, here's React, here's React Native, here's Buck, here's GraphQL, all these things are in actual live production, mission critical use. So you know they're going to get maintained. And the same thing with the managing bias and educational mm-hmm. content. That's what we use internally, right? So the incentives are aligned to keep it really good. Mm-hmm. And, and to me, that, that says a lot about the company. It's very appealing. Cool. Well, if people want to follow along with you or get in touch and talk to you more about these kinds of things or are interested in joining your team or anything, what's the best way for people to do that? Yeah, we're definitely hiring. I'm happy to put my contact info on the podcast webpage. Mm-hmm. Uh, if someone just wants to email me, it's first name, last initial at yoavshapira.com. Cool. Yeah. Great. Well, thank you for joining me, Yoav. And I wish you all the best. Thank you. It's been a pleasure and, and good luck. Keep ThoughtBot rocking. It's an impressive uh, organization. You can subscribe to the show and find show notes for this episode at giantrobots.fm. If you have questions or comments, email us at hosts at giantrobots.fm. And you can find me on Twitter at cpytel. This podcast is brought to you by ThoughtBot and produced and edited by Tom Obarski. Thanks for listening and see you next time. This podcast was brought to you by ThoughtBot. 
We are experienced designers and developers who turn your idea into the right product. With local studios in Boston, San Francisco, New York, London, Austin, and Raleigh, let's build something great together.